Amen? Amen. Well, turn, if you have a Bible, to Psalm chapter 84. If you haven't got a Bible, um, a physical one, maybe grab your phone. And if you'd like a paper one, we can give you one. We've got some at the back. Um, we are going to get there in a moment. But you will know if you were here last week that we are in a teaching series, a vision series called This Is Us. Um, and we're trying to rediscover the New Testament vision for the church as we come out, we hope, of the worst, at least, of the pandemic. And we find ourselves in this new season, this new chapter as a church. What does it mean to be the people of God? Now, a couple of people said to me after last week, just out of interest, Rich, is the title for this series in, in any way informed by the TV series on Amazon Prime of the same name, This Is Us? Some of you would have seen that. Um, hands up who's watched This Is Us on Amazon. A few of you know, a few of you know, it's some of the best TV you'll ever see. It follows um, a normal family trying to work out who the heck they actually are and work through all of the reality and mess of being family to one another. Um, it is beautiful, it's brilliant. I have to be honest and say that Kath got so into it, like uh, to, the form, to the point where I would probably call it some form of addiction, and I basically couldn't keep up with her. So I haven't finished it, you have. But I got quite alarmed at one point when Kath would sort of talk out loud about how she was worried about Kevin. Um, who's one of the main characters, and I had to sort of gently say, he's actually, it's just fiction, my darling. It's like, um, but then I realised that I have a similar thing that happens when I was watching Suits, which is the great legal thriller, if you know that. And when I'm at my desk late at night, it's just me in the world, I channel my inner Harvey Specter, who's the law lead, because he's always, he's always in the office late at night, isn't he? Finishing the job at like midnight with a glass of whiskey, and I'm like, yes. So I realise I can't, um, can't be too critical. Anyway, the point is, it is slightly informed by that TV series, the title, because it reminds us that the church is just like Kevin and Randall and Kate and their family, and this is us. Ordinary people trying to work out this extraordinary life together with all of our gifts and brilliance and all of our imperfection and faults, with all the traumas that life brings and all of the blessing that it brings us to as well. So really we're saying, how can we be the family of God? What does it mean to be a brother and sister to Jesus? I was reflecting earlier when I, uh, I had the chance to go to Uganda a few years ago with Tear Fund, uh, and I was always struck when you met people there, they would say, my name is David, and I'm a brother of Jesus. My name is Hope. I follow Jesus. They didn't use the word Christian. And it's interesting because actually in the New Testament, the word Christian is only there three times. But the word disciple, better translated apprentice, is there 268 times. Our identity is that we're brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ and we've chosen to follow him. I love what Alison Morgan says. She's a, she's a Church of England theologian. Um, she says this, the plural of disciple is church. The plural of disciple is church. If the church is not about making disciples, she says, it is not church. Discipleship is not something the church does. It is what the church is. The church, she says, is the community which supports and directs our discipleship in the world. 
friends. This isn't something we go to. This isn't a club we join. This isn't a club with benefits. You know, you put your standing order in and you get X, Y, X, Y, Z back in return. This is who we are. This is us. I said last week that if we pick up the New Testament, there's all sorts of images that the Bible uses to try to articulate who we are this community of the family of God. We're citizens of the new creation. We're the body of Christ, many parts. All of us needed, every single one of us. We're the family of God, this glorious family like we just talked about. And last week we looked at how we're this holy temple. God dwells on earth in us. Our hearts are the new holy of holies in which we have been filled by the Spirit. That happened first at Pentecost in the church and then every day since. And that is a continuation of the temple narrative that weaves its way through Scripture. God has always been present on the earth. He created it and he made us in his image. He wants to be with us. So he was with Adam and Eve in the garden. He will be there at the end in the new heaven and earth temple. And in between, he's there in some form of temple. And right now, it's the church. Isn't that extraordinary? The closest we get to a neat, tidy definition for the church in the New Testament is the Greek word ekklesia. And we translate that sometimes as church. It's actually a compound word. It comes out of two Greek words, ek, which means out of, and klesia, which is actually another Greek word, kalia, which means to be called out. So put them together, and we are literally the called out ones. We've been called out from the world and invited into something, adopted into something, and commissioned to be something. Called out ones. That word was in use at the time of Jesus. It's fascinating to me that the early church adopted that as their moniker, their catch-all description for who they were. That word was used in two ways at the time of the early church. The first was as reference to the elected civil assembly, like the, the local council or the city council, those that, that governed the affairs of the community. They were the ecclesia. It was a responsibility they had to, to think about the well-being of the people all around them. But it's also a word that the Roman emperor would use when he was assembling an army. He would literally call out ex Calelio. He'd call people, summons men to come be his army so that he could subvert the systems around him and, and extend the empire with force. And here you've got the church saying, we are the true ecclesia. We're the ones called out, not by, the, by um, a Roman emperor, but by God himself, not to use force to extend the kingdom of God, but to subvert the world by serving and sacrificial loving of the world around us, taking responsibility for the affairs, not just of our city, but of the whole creation, past, present, and future. Pete Hughes, uh, my friend in London, puts it like this. He says, the church is a worldwide community of Jesus followers, surrendered to the lordship of Christ, through which God's purposes for the world are to be realized. Pete, I think there should be some slides for all of this. I don't know whether you've got them or not. Um, we all sorts of tech issues, like I say, but if they're there, it'd be great if we could whack them up. And so what I'm asking really is, what does it mean to be this worldwide community of Jesus followers? Surrender to the Lordship of Christ, through which God's purposes for the world is to be realized. How do we do that? And, and why do we do the things we do as a church to help us get there? Because sometimes church life can just feel a bit like, oh, we do those things because that's what we do. Why? And how? 
And what happens when we do? And surely it only makes sense to do them if we understand why we should do them, because we know who we are. So that's really the agenda for this series. And last week, I left us with this idea that we are now the temple, the presence of God dwells in us here on earth. And I want to pick up there this morning and talk about the importance of understanding that we are a people of God's presence. Not only are we containers of it in and for the world, we are the place where heaven and earth interlock and overlap right now, and and that that's a gift to others. God is present through us, but actually, because of that, we can be present to God. That actually through the Spirit, through the gift of Jesus, risen from the dead, raised to new life by the same Spirit, who brought all creation into being, you and I now can return to loving relationship with the Father. We can know the intimacy that God intended for every single one of us right from the very beginning. The intimacy that Adam and Eve had in the garden temple. And the intimacy that we will have at the end of time when Jesus returns to consummate all creation. The true wedding. That's where it begins, friends. Because you and I, before we think about what we do for the world, before we even think about how we might follow Jesus and become like him, become who Jesus would be if he was us, is actually first to know that we are simply called to be his people, to live in his presence, to know God, to be still and know that he is God. And actually, to know in that place of intimacy and rest and belonging who we are. Because the truth is, you are who you are when you're in the presence of God. You are who God says you are, not what your social media projects, not what other people put on you. Just who God says you are. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Very good. Worth saving. And it's from that place of belonging and security and peace and comfort that we are called to live into the world and to serve. And so often what happens if we're not careful is that place of intimacy, that place of belonging becomes something that we're we're trying to get back to the whole time. But it's not that the presence of God disappears from us. It's that we disappear, move away from the presence of God ourselves. And we'll come to this in a moment, but the spiritual practices help us be rooted and established in love. God is love. That's what Paul's getting at there, my prayer. You'd be rooted and established, not not in a concept called love, but a person by the Spirit. Not wondering, Dad, am I okay? Like, have I done today? But like, hey, Dad. Well, actually, in, as you know, Habba, Daddy. I don't have to be grown up. I don't have to have it all together. I don't have to fake it to make it. I don't have to grin and bear it. I don't have to put on a brave face. I can just collapse in a heap if that's where I'm at. Now, 2010, we were uh, living... Um, no, it can't be 2010. 2008, it was. We were living in... Uh, well, I forget what year it was, because Emily was in... We were pregnant with Emily, so it must have been early in that. We were in New Zealand, living in New Zealand, helping plant a church. Sorry, my notes aren't very clear. We were in Auckland, and I managed to get tickets to go and see you 2 live in concert. I basically jumped on Ticketmaster, um, hit refresh, 
got through, if you know what this is like, they sold out in eight minutes, right? All, all the gigs, got through, and then there's an option, as many of the best possible tickets as you can afford, basically, the, the big red button. So I hit this red button. I got four of the best seats you can get for this concert. Uh, it went through $1,200 later. I'm thinking, honey, uh, I've got to try and sell two. And we did, some friends of ours came. And I'm not joking, I was sat here, Kath was here, and Bono was where the camera is just there. That's how close I was to St. Bono of Dublin. It was very, very close. Now, why do I tell you that? Because it was one of those moments in my life I will never forget. Not only was it an incredible concert under the New Zealand sky, it's warm, you know, we're just, it was extraordinary. But there was a moment when Bono stopped singing and he stood there and he put his hands out and he looked at us and he said, can you feel it? Can you feel it? And of course the crowd's like, yeah! And he goes, no, can you feel it? It's the presence of God. Now, you can discuss this later, whether God's presence can be experienced tangibly, manifestly at a U2 concert. But some of you, many of you will know that experience of being somehow in the manifest, tangible, experienced presence of God. When people gather and they worship, however misplaced. And there were moments where that was the closest thing people knew how to do, to worship something. They didn't realize they were worshiping. I don't want to get into the point of that. They weren't worshiping Bono. But there's this deep human instinct to worship, and they didn't know where else to go. So here we are in this concert, and essentially for a moment, he's the priest, naming that God was there. And of course God was there, because God is everywhere, always. You don't seek the presence of God because it's already here. We return to it. We pay attention to it. We posture ourselves towards it. We live into it, but it's always there. God is always here. The theologians talk about omnipresence, the omnipresence of God. But the question then is, but is God really more somehow particularly accessible? Can you feel the presence of God in a rock concert? or on a Sunday gathering, or on top of a hill? Or is it actually just some chemical reaction in your brain? Which is what some people would say. Well, it might be both. But I would argue it's definitely possible to connect deeply, tangibly, with God's presence. Uh, Solomon, in 1 Kings chapter 8, just before he's about to dedicate this big temple to the living God, says this, verse 27, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much this, less this temple I've built? Like, it's almost like he's having this slight moment of doubt just before launch night. Like, is this actually going to work? Am I mad? And then, of course, no. God's spirit fills the temple like we talked about last week. The witness of scripture, the witness of church history, the witness of the people of God is that, yes, God took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. He became present to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And now, through his spirit, is present to us in and through the body of Christ, by his spirit, all places, anytime, anywhere. The difference simply is whether we're open to that, whether we look for that, whether we pay attention to that. 
And I'm saying all of this because, friends, more than anything, what the world needs is us to be a people of his presence. That is the biggest gift we can give the world. Anyone can pack food in a bag. But when you do it in love with the presence of God, unto the things of God, something different happens. The most common term for presence in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word panim, P-A-N-I-M. And it's best translated before his face. Moses, if you know, has this burning bush moment and, and he can't see his face. He has to turn because it would be the revelation of who God is would be too much. So he passes by. But really the prayer, the heart cries, God, let me see your face. Let me encounter you by your spirit, through your spirit that you've poured out on all people that I might know you and see you and become who I am in you. Take up my rightful place as a son of of yours, as a brother and sister of your son, Jesus. Take up my birthright and live into who I really am. And so there's the omnipresence, but there is this invitation all the time to engage with what theologians call the manifest presence of God. This God gracious act of of making himself real and known and in the room. And I think those of us with a charismatic spirituality perhaps have had more experience of this in some ways than perhaps other traditions, but it's not unique to our tradition at all. You can encounter the manifest presence of God in a sun, choral, Eucharist, high mass with lots of candles and men and women dressed in all their finest vestments if you're posturing towards that. You can encounter the presence of God, yes, at a rock concert and in all sorts of other places. Sometimes the most holy moments are around a dining room table, aren't they? There's laughter and there's joy and there's a sense in which God is present by his spirit. But we can, when we gather as the people of God, intentionally posture ourselves towards it. And I'm using my language really, really carefully because I think in the past I would have used an unclumsily language like, let's pursue the, God, the presence of God. Let's press into the presence of God. Let's seek his presence. And there's a place for that in terms of going looking for it, but it's not really going looking for it. It's just stopping and choosing to become attentive to it. But in that responsiveness to God, leaning in, praising, worshipping, whatever, we'll come to how we do that in a moment, God does then respond. There is this transaction, not, uh, that's the wrong word, there is this kind of interplay between two people. Just like if I was to turn up at your house become and see your face, you'd welcome me in, I hope. You might go, what the heck are you doing? Um, it's not convenient right now, vicar. Um, but assuming you were like, yeah, great, you'd invite me in, we'd talk, we'd hang out, we'd connect, and I'd become much more attentive to you and you to me, and I'd be in your presence, and I'd, I'd benefit from who you are. It's the same sort of thing. So Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, Jesus says this, for where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. So one other person, you and one other person, and you, and you intentionally gather, there I am. And here what Jesus, I think, is trying to say is, when you gather in an intentional way, when you come together as my people to be with me, there I am manifestly. I'm here everywhere, all over the place. I'm with you tomorrow morning in that really difficult meeting. Or when you're having that awful conversation about the care for a loved one that's really difficult. I'm there. But when you gather in my name together as my people, I'm there in a particular way. Why? Well, fundamentally because God wants to be with us. 
God's heart is to bless, to care, to love, to sow into us. He, he loves it. He's the loving father. He sees us coming back over the hill. What does he do to the prodigal son? He runs out. Yes, it's a story about the son, but really it's a story about the father. And so when two or three of us gather, whether it's here or at home, in life groups, midweek, little breakout, whatever you do, and God's there by his spirit. Not in some sort of like cognitive, oh, you can trust he's there. Like you can know his presence. You can sit in it. Sometimes you feel it, don't you? Some of us tangibly more than others, that felt, it's the, it's the presence of God. There's a heaviness, a good heaviness. That's not just a spiritual high. That's not just a spirituality preference. That is literally God in the room, tangibly, so you would know him. Not just know him, but like know him. And in that place, if you spend long enough there, what happens is that we slow down. Have you noticed how you can slow down your body quite easily, sit, but it takes a lot longer for what's going on in here or in here to slow down? Like a lot longer. Like a lot longer. But when you know that you're with God, suddenly a peace comes. And there are moments, literally an encounter moment, where suddenly some, you tangibly feel something shift. You start to cry. Or joy rises up. We see that sometimes, don't we, in ministry times when we're just inviting God to pour out his spirit upon us that we know his presence. This is important because so much of what we try to do as a church is to facilitate you and I living together and individually in and from the presence of God. And part of what we do when we gather like this is remember how to do it. But also recognize that when two or three or more gather, something different happens. There's something good about being in the room. So many of you have said to me, online was fine. It kind of got us through. And lots of you who are online, hopefully you are now online with us. I have no idea. They are. Welcome. We love you. So many of you I know would love to be here. And some of you are like, this is the best we can do. And we love that. And, and I'm not for one minute wanting to say anything other than, but there is something tangible that happens when we're in the room. And it's not just this room, it's any room because we worship a God who incarnates himself. And so you can experience God's presence and you will be in your living room, I know it. But it's harder. That's what people are saying, it's harder. Why? Because when two or three gather physically together, we look, we look at one another in the face and together we look at him in the face. It's just easier than looking at a screen. Even though, you know, I think I'm looking pretty sharp, new haircut, all of that. Just joking, keeping you going. The story of scripture begins and ends with the presence of God. Chapter one, the presence of God in the heaven, earth, temple. Chapter 21 of, 22 of Revelation, the last chapter, the book ends, ends with the presence of God in a new creation temple. Where does Jesus, first, as the risen Jesus, first reveal himself? When did they first see his face? In the garden, Mary sees his face. She encounters his presence there in the world. Psalm 84, which I asked you to open to about six hours ago. Here we are. Here's what David writes. How lovely is your dwelling place. That's temple language. 
how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord, for my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. He's, I, I want to be with you. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Better is one day in your courts. That can also be translated presence than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. There's something he knows about the presence of God that is good. Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. The fullness of joy Remember, Jesus says, my prayer is that you, you would make my joy in you complete. The fullness of joy is found in the presence of God. Nowhere else. Nowhere else. The eternal pleasures, the things that are ultimately good for us, that because they're good, are at his right hand and they're a gift to us. You don't find it anywhere else. We go looking all the time. We're tempted to find joy in something else and we drift from his presence. But it's in God's presence that we are at rest, at peace and truly ourselves. It's where we belong. A.W. Tozer, the great spiritual writer, total legend, says this, nothing in or of this world measures up to the simple pleasure of experiencing the presence of God. Nothing, he says, nothing in or of this world measures up to the simple pleasure of experiencing the presence of God. And here's the amazing truth that contrary to how it might feel, you know those days when you're thinking, I'm not worthy of this or, or I've screwed up or some other number of things that might be going through your head. The truth is, the scriptures remind us, you cannot outrun God. You cannot escape his presence, even when you want to. Like even on the day when you're like, I've had enough. I don't think you're very good and I don't think you're real. Maybe not. I'm not sure. Ever have those days? You do. I know. You, I do too occasionally, just so we're in this together. But Psalm 139 says this. You hem me in. Not trap me, but hem me, protect me. It's, it's hedge language. Huddle. You huddle me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. It's ownership, blessing. You're mine. Such knowledge, he says, is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I got to the heavens, you are there. If I'm, if I'm in a good place, you're there. But also, if I make my bed in the depths when I'm having a rubbish day, you're there too. In fact, often we encounter God more, don't we, on the bad days when we tune in, then often we do on an ordinary day because we go looking for him. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Friends, this isn't something we tap into every so often. It's not an optional extra. This is reality. This, this is reality. God is present by his spirit. That is what everyone is invited into. That is where you become truly human. That's real. That's what will last. Everything else is temporary. 
I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, we may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. He walks everywhere incognito. I love that. It's like, he's just like, hello. <laughs> because he's with us. Like literally with us and for us. And I said, I will never, never leave you or forsake you. And so I'm saying really, this is called, we're called to have an active posture, paying attention all the time, individually and corporately, to the presence of God, whether just rem- remembering that he's in, in and for and over all things, or particularly choosing to engage with him, to encounter him, to seek his face in our lives. Acts 3, I find this really interesting. This is an instruction uh, from the early church leaders to the people of God, trying to get their heads around what on earth is going on. It says this, repent and turn to God, conversation for another time, so that your sins may be wiped out. But notice this, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. This isn't just, it, it's, it's remembering what he's done and how and why and what that means and being thankful, but also so that we can step into what that set us free for, the refreshing of God. And that word there, again, is linked to presence. That you'd know what the life that flows from God, that he may send the Messiah who's been appointed for you. Guys, when we stop and make room to linger in the presence of God corporately, when we say, come Holy Spirit, we're saying, refresh us, Lord, for life. Pour out your life into us. And there's going to come a day, as I've said earlier, Revelation 21 says this, when We'll all be together forever. Verse 21, sorry, 21 verse 3. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Heaven and earth, one perfect union, new reality. We'll live in the manifest presence of God all the days of our life and it will be so good. But we are eschatological people. We are people of the future. The Spirit comes and says, here, have some of it now. Have a, have a glimpse, have a, a foretaste, live into that. How good is that? It's not just a promise. It's something we step by step take hold of in this life because the kingdom is coming and the kingdom has come. And so a question Are we posturing ourselves daily, corporately and individually to the face of God, the panim? Are we looking, seeking, attending, whatever language is helpful for you? Moses says, doesn't he, in Exodus 33, as they're making their way to the promised land, when there's been a bit of basically a dispute between God and his people, he says, God, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us up from here. We're not going without you, because without you, we're nothing. I want to say this moment in, at this moment in time, friends, as a church, there's, there's so much we could do. There's so much we must do. There's so much need. There's so much opportunity. This is a good season that we're going into for the church. I think we're living through extraordinary times. I think we will look back, and we will look back and say, God, look what you did in us and through us post-pandemic, but, but what the Lord is saying is, I'm not, I don't want you to go anywhere just yet. We've got to go and step with the Spirit, and we've got to be prepared to say, we're not doing anything without your presence. And we're really good as the people of God 
at taking things into our own hands. Gregory Beale, the theologian, says, the mark of the true church is an expanding witness to the presence of God. I love that, simply that. That the, the, the test for how well we're doing is that more of God's presence becomes known to us and to those we serve. I want to have people standing up here before we baptize them, telling us that they've encountered God through us and for themselves, that the presence of God and the power of God, they've met him, they've met the loving father. Maybe for the very first time, become who they really are. A friend of mine was telling me the day he baptized a 97-year-old man who came to faith online in London. Just met Jesus. How amazing is that? So, to wrap things up and land it practically, and then we're gonna spend some time in worship and present, at the presence of God. We have three strategic kind of operating structures or priorities as a church. Presence, formation, and mission. Those are the three lenses through which we look at everything. So that's not new to some of you. We're interested all the time. Does this help us be people of his presence? Are we being formed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, the apprenticeship stuff? And are we doing what he's called us to do, people on mission? Those three things are kind of our lenses. And the first of those is the most important because if you get that bit right, the other two are possible. Without, the other, without it, the other two can be done, but they're just hard work and we burn out and become hard. It's too hard. So we do four things as the people of God to practice the presence of God. The first is that we commit to gathering together. When two or three or more are gathered, there I am. So guys, let's keep gathering the writer to the Hebrews says, do not give up on gathering, as some are doing. This is a time, isn't it, where we've got to renegotiate everything. But I want to say, make it a priority to gather together with your brothers and sisters in this little bit of God's holy Catholic and apostolic church, like we said earlier. Gathering online if you can and on site if you can. Make this a priority, not because I want big numbers and I want you all to listen to me, but because something happens when we gather in us so that something can happen the rest of the week through us. It's like the team huddle when we come back together and say, we are the family and we're gonna gather and we're gonna look at one another and say, I love you. You're my brother and you're my sister and I want together with you to look at God's face, our Father, so that we might reflect something of his glory into the world, that we might once again live in and from his life-giving presence, the love and the power that comes from being with him. That's why we do it. Yes, hopefully you have an encounter with God and you feel joy and you feel liberated. Hopefully, yes, you get good insight from the scriptures that shapes and calibrates your life. Hopefully, yes, the coffee's good when we can eventually start serving that again, that we look at one another. But more importantly, that we, that we lay hands on one another, that we, get, we hold each other when we can do that again. And we say, we're in this together, but we're in this together with and for him. And so it's so much harder to do the Christian life on your own. It's actually impossible but when we gather, and it means putting it in your diary, and actually it means being willing to help make the family gatherings happen. We need people to help us. We could do with some people on the tech team, couldn't we, lads? <laughs> you know you're in trouble when I'm on the sound desk, like, just so you know. The second thing we do is we spend time in worship. And not just sung worship, but more about that in a moment. Worship, of course, is a posture 
It's choosing ultimately to give worth to God. He's the only one worthy of our adoration. He's the only one we should sacrifice for. He's the only one we should lay down our lives for. And we do that in all sorts of ways. We do that when we give thanks. Just being thankful, listing the things he's given us. It's all gift. When we break bread and pour out wine at the Eucharist, it's thanksgiving meal, it's worship. But also when we gather as one body and sing one song with one voice. And something happens when the people of God do that. If you go through the scriptures, they've always sung. And the reason why we'll do two or three songs in a block in a moment is because when we sing like that, in that particular way, posturing ourselves towards God, we do find that he responds. He comes to us. And we experience something of his manifest presence in the room through song worship. The danger, of course, is that it becomes an exercise in consumption. We sing to get that feeling. No. But when we sing and God comes, we make room and we let him pour out his spirit upon us. And that looks different for all of us, but that is why we do it the way we do, rather than a song here, some liturgy of song here. And there's a place for that, but here we do it this way. Number three, we, oh sorry, I wanted to quote Eugene Peterson because this is the best quote on worship and it has to be used in any talk I ever do on worship. Worship, he says, is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God. Are you preoccupied with yourselves? I am. Number three, prayer. Cass mentioned some of the ways we go about prayer here. Prayer simply is acknowledging that who we need and what we need is found only in the person of God. It reveals to us the presence of God, equally present all the time in every condition. God is there. God, God cares. That thing you're praying for, God's there. That person you're praying for, God's with them. That moment you're dreading, God's going to be with you. Prayer helps us posture ourselves to become attentive to God's presence. That reassurance, I've got this. It may not be in this life. It may not be now. It may not be when and how you want it, but there's coming a day, I promise you, when I will return and there'll be no more sickness and no more death. And so you can live with one eye on the horizon and it's going to be okay. And when you pray with that kind of perspective, the presence of God becomes tangible, manifest in a different way. You have that deep assurance so we're trying to create a culture of prayer here where we pray. Ideally, I'd love it to the point where we're, we have a 24-7 prayer room going the whole time in all sorts of different ways where we're praying. But we're putting in different things, hungry gatherings, the daily office, our prayer groups, trying to learn how to pray. Not just intercede and ask, but pray. Talk to God in his presence. Talk to God about people and then go and talk to people about God. That's what we're trying to do all the time. And that, to me, seems to be the biggest priority for us post-pandemic. Prayer, prayer, prayer. Finally, and I'm not going to say anything about this, but I just want to flag with you that beyond the gathered thing, the number one thing you can do and I can do if I'm serious about the presence of God in my own life is silence and solitude. I've spoken about this in the past. We'll send a link out to the talk. But that's the killer app being still and silent and on our own so we can attend to God's presence with us. Brother Lawrence, I'll finish with this, says the most holy and important practice in the spiritual life is the presence of God. The most holy and important practice in the spiritual life is the presence of God. 
That is, every moment to to take great pleasure that God is with you. Being still and silent. Remember, God is with me and I can turn to his face and I can encounter his manifest presence. He's literally here. 